Amazing. So, Father, thank you that um, you have already steered our conversation and our look at these scriptures. Thank you that we will learn things that we didn't know before and you will amplify some of the things we thought we knew and, and we'll go away the better for it. And we just praise you for that, Lord, that you would do that for us, um, that you would take people like us and reveal to us the mysteries of your creation and your salvation and the reality of Christ. And I, I mean, Father, I'm so amazed that you would do that because we don't always understand and we don't get it quickly, but you're patient with us and drawing us closer and closer. And for that, I thank you and ask you now to really give us the wisdom and the insight and the understanding we need to be able to work our way through these verses and hear your voice in them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, okay, cause could we read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14? through 3 verse 12 please if you know a few people read then we'll get through it fairly quickly so second timothy chapter 2 verse 14 to 3 verse 12 And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honour and some to dishonour. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honour, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace with those who call on the, name, on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. I realise this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. <clears throat> For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Hold into a form of holiness, although they have denied his power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, 
learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jan and Janus opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. The men of depraved mind, rejected the regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to them. Just as the two James followed <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to stop there. This is just review, remember, but I think if you looked online and you looked at the homework, um, I asked you to list the instructions in these verses, actually to list, yeah, to list them. And um, I want to spend some time talking about them because uh, I think they're important. So what's the first instruction in verse 14 to Timothy? Remind them of these things. What are these things? What does he mean, these things? Yes, I think that's certainly part of it. That, that, that um, uh, thing that he says, it's a trustworthy statement, which we said we thought might be uh, something that was recited at baptisms. Um, so remember that. I think remember what he said before that, you know, um, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier involves himself in everyday affairs. Um, so all of the things that have gone before remind them of these things, but also all of the things that he's now going to say to come after. So I, I'm not sure that you could say either or. or. I, I think it might be good to remind them of all these things. And so um, uh, why do you think he's saying, for example, just before it, he says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Why would that need to be reminded to people? And what do you take from those verses? When you read them, what, what do you think? What do you think they mean, basically? Yeah, it does come across a bit conditional. If if they did use it as a as a hymn or a poem or a statement at a baptism, do you think they would have wanted it to be conditional at a baptism? Yes. You think so? Why do you think so, Debbie? Because it's a commitment to Christ. It is. Yeah. What's the purpose of baptism? Yeah, what's the purpose of the actual baptismal ceremony? It's a witness to the people who watch it. Mm. Romans chapter 6 says that uh, we, or uh, chapter 5, um, let me, five, uh, I'll say 5 and 6, no, Romans chapter 6, Paul says that when you believed, you were baptized with Christ. You were buried with him and you were raised with him to walk in newness of life. That happened without water. There was no water present. When you believed, when I believed, I uh, believed in the Lord Jesus and God identified me with him so that I was identified with his death, his burial and his resurrection. The baptism is the outward proclamation of what God has already done. So most people are baptised 
not long after they come to faith. That was certainly true in the Bible days, and it was true for me. I was baptized six months after I came to faith. I actually had no clue what the commitment would be called for from the Lord for me. Uh, but I was just making a public proclamation that I, I used to be an unbeliever, and now I'm a believer, and I am being dipped in the water to proclaim that. If that's true of the Old Test of the baptism that Paul's talking about, and I think it is, then the statement, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, we will, he will also deny us. And then if we are faithless, he, ha- he remains faithful. Cannot be conditional because it's part of a proclamation that I, have, I am now in Christ. I am now identified with Christ. Read Romans 6 and you'll see it. It's very clear in Romans 6. Um, so if that's true, what does it mean if we deny him, he will deny us? Because Peter denied Christ three times and Jesus didn't deny him. So the one, ex- sorry, Angela, the one example of it in Scripture of someone actually denying Christ and that the words are used, he denied Christ three times, is the one person that Jesus doesn't deny. So this statement is not true if, if, if it's relating to something like that. So what does it mean? Is it to do with the fact that if someone has made this commitment, they're making this commitment, it's genuine, and, it, and they are going through with it, and therefore they will endure. And if they don't, it shows that they did never really... I I think that would be nice and neat, but I'm not sure it means that. Um, I think it's possible to deny Christ in the moment, which is what Peter did. It was possible. He was afraid, and he didn't know what he was facing. And in that moment, he denied Christ. Now, I don't think it's possible to consistently and ultimately deny Christ if you are in Christ, if you are a believer. And I think that's what the, if you are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. I think that kind of wraps it up. That, that what's happened to you when you believed in Jesus is that you gave yourself to God and you're trusting him to take you to a place you cannot get on your own. See what I mean? You're trusting him to save you because you know you cannot do anything to make yourself saved. So why is it different now that you are a Christian? You came to him believing the gospel, which is you are lost without Christ. Without Christ, you are done for. And if Christ doesn't do what he promises to do, you are done for no matter how much you believe it. You could believe it from now until kingdom come. If he breaks his promise, you're done. That's why I don't believe replacement theology. If replacement theology, if God will replace Israel, he will replace me. So there has to be something beyond these words. Now, they're difficult and they're not easy to understand. And what I've just said may not be true. That's what I think it means. But I know that if my salvation depends in any part on me, I am lost forever. Because I cannot, I cannot do or be all that I'm supposed to be and do. Without God, I'm talking about without God. So, you know, this is in, the le- in a letter 
that Paul's writing to Timothy to encourage him to live the life of a soldier in active service, to live the life of suffering, to go through persecution, to live for Christ in the midst of times that will become more and more and more difficult. Now, through this letter, we are being encouraged in our day to live that life in, in, in the face of what will get Growing opposition and increasing darkness, we are called actually, and now we've studied this book, we are called not just to live a good life, we're called to live this life, a life of separation and a life of endurance. If you have to set out on that road thinking that if you don't manage it, you're lost, well, who's going to walk that road? (laughs) I'm not going to. So it's in that context... I think that what what Paul is saying, even though it's difficult to understand, is that we will live with Christ because we have died with him. God has so identified us with Christ that on the day Christ was crucified, I was crucified. That when he was buried, I was buried. And when he was raised, I was raised. And, And that transaction happened before I was born. God has so identified me with Christ that, that it was all done for me before I had really any part in it. So remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. Why would you need reminding of the absolute assurance of your salvation? Why? Yeah. Because the... Doubt comes in when your life is not the way you want it to be or going the way you should be. And in particular, when you are failing to live the Christian life the way you know you want to live it. He is faithful. Yes. 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 It is. Yeah. He's not me, yeah. You are not saved by your faith. You are saved by the faithfulness of Christ. Because you could have faith as, as high as the, the Himalayas. But if, if Christ is not faithful, it doesn't mean anything. So, but, but, of course there's a but or a however. However, there are some things that you will do and be if you really are saved. Because the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And you will change. That's, that's a definite happening. You will definitely change. You'll change at first because you'll become a new creation. And you will find that you have new desires. And those desires are for holiness. You will want to be holy. So the acid test for you and for me is, do I really want to be holy? I mean, really when I'm not with you guys, when I'm not looking at the scriptures, when I'm just sitting on my own and when I can be whatever I want to be, do I really want to be holy? Is that the desire of my heart? Because God says, if he lives within me, he will create that desire in me. So... Of course. Because we all want to be like him. You'll want to be like him. We'll fail miserably, but the desire will be always to continue. There are three verses. There are three uh, positive things. 
Yes. In other words, it says we're also live with him positive. Mm. We will reign with him positive. Mm. Uh, you will remain faithful. Mm. Positive. But if we deny him, he will deny us. Mm. That's That's the problem. That's the difficult bit. Definitely. And it is a conundrum. And I can't tell you exactly why that's written like that. I don't know. And there may be other layers in it, too. But because it may be, if it's, this is read at a baptismal service and, and a part of the proclamation, the reality is, I'm telling you, showing you, I've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Uh, this is my proclamation of the truth of the gospel. If you deny this truth, he will deny you. Thinking of it that way. Now, I don't know if that's absolutely, you know, if I find another, you know, if I come up with something else later, I'll let you know. But you may do too. You may read and study and think, no, I, actually this is something else. So you should come back and tell me. <laughs> uh, I don't think that actually, Carol, because, well, I think, I think that, yeah, possibly. I think it's possible to be a believer and also hold to replacement theology. I can't imagine how you can, but I think it's possible. I think that people are deceived. It's possible for us to be deceived. I mean, the whole Bible, New Testament, is written to stop us being deceived. So, yes, if possible, even at the, the elect. So, okay, so remind them of these things, the before and after things that he's talked about here. And then he says, what's the next instruction? Solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. Now that is an amazingly strong statement. Solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. Why? It's useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Okay, now think about that. Think about how you are. I love to wrangle about words. I love the debate and the discussion, and I love telling you what I know. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know, Anne. I think that this is a very strong charge, and the reason that he's saying it is that you may know what a word means, you may know what this doctrine is, you may know that, but if you start arguing with someone who, doesn't, who you think doesn't know, anyone listening is not built up. They are brought down. So, exactly. You and I might have a, a discussion about something. We might say, you know, well, I believe redemption means this, and you'll say, no, it means that, and we'll, all, you know, we'll talk about words or forgiveness or assurance of salvation, all of that. We could talk about that, and all the people who were listening would go away. Don't you think self comes into that as well? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's all about me. It's all about my opinion. Absolutely, yeah. So don't wrangle about words. Now, he's talking to someone who's going to take his role in the church. So basically, Paul's saying, do what I do. I don't wrangle about words with people. I don't wrangle, with words, about, wrangle about words with them. Now, I mean, that was, it's a challenge to me. I'm always saying that. Nobody says it's a challenge to them, but it, it should be a challenge to you because it's so easy to do that, to wrangle about words words or ideas or yeah yeah no exactly mine too yeah mine too and it's 
just in case you, you, yeah. Just in case you thought you'd reached dizzy heights of spirituality, your friend is behind you, reminding you. Yeah. So. Yes, yes. But again, that's not wrangling, is it? Wrangling has got a different connotation to debate and discussion. I can talk to you, we can share opinions, that's good. But wrangling has got this idea of arguing and I'm right, yeah, and I'm right. Um, and as Eve says, that has long been my favourite sport. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so he says, I'm solemnly charging you in the presence of God, don't do that, because it will just lead to, um, uh, sorry, where am I? Uh, useless and lead to the ruin of the hearers. And then what's the next instruction? Yeah, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Now, think about this. I thought I'm already approved to God because I'm in Christ Jesus. So what does he mean that I have to be diligent to present myself approved to God? Yeah, but he's saying I must be diligent to present myself to God. It's like... Wait a minute, I'm in Christ, and I thought I was already there. So what is that about? And I think now, Deborah, we're coming to what you were saying about baptism and about the commitment that you make. So I think what he's saying here is um, that, yes, God is your Father, and yes, you are in Christ, and yes, you can come boldly to the throne of grace, but this God is the creator of the universe. He is the sovereign, most high God. And you just can't come running in, covered in sin, and thinking it's all going to be okay. You have to be diligent to make sure that you're doing everything you are supposed to do to present yourself to this sovereign, most high God as approved. And there, because there, there you have it, the conundrum of Christianity. I am completely and utterly safe in Christ, but I must do my part to maintain, to stay. Yes, yeah. That's James, yeah. There you go, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. But I think it's that, uh, because if you take it the wrong way round, you end up afraid. Oh my goodness, I don't, I don't do enough. I'm not diligent enough. I don't, you know. So if you think of it too in the wrong way, it just produces fear, which is not of God. So it has to be this, idea, this understanding that the Holy Spirit in me will enable me to do what God wants me to do. And I will find not only that, but I want to do what God wants me to do. So then when I fail, it's, I'm not afraid to get up and start again thinking I've lost my salvation. All I know is there was something else maybe I could have done or said or, you know, and there's no fear in it. So, but he's saying be diligent to present yourself approved to God in what way? As a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, here I think you've got replacement theology, you've got 
I mean, the whole passage to me speaks of all these false teachings that are not approved to God. Be diligent to accurately handle the word of, of truth um, and not so that you don't need to be ashamed. Um, yeah. When you read this word, you know, this is the very word of God to us. And he wants us to know some things about him. And so he's asking us, you say you love me, then be diligent in this. Accurately handle the word of truth. It's not good enough to say, well, God loves us all, so it's fine. 66 books, however many words, you know, and all of them diamonds that God wants us to have for ourselves and know. So accurately handling the word of truth. And then he goes on, and what does he say? Yeah, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. What's the worldly and empty chatter? Well, I mean, I think that's, that's probably empty chatter, but I'm not sure he's talking about that here. He says, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he names two men who have already gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. So I think what he means by worldly and empty chatter is all the philosophies and kind of reasoning of men um, that actually are contrary to the word of God but sound intelligent intellectual, sound good. And I think he's deliberately saying it's worldly and empty chatter because it just comes from the world and it has nothing in it. It's just empty. Exactly. Exactly. People trying to be clever. And that's what we have in theological colleges. People trying to be clever because they, they can't take this as it is. They have to find another meaning that's underneath that you and I can't get because we're too simple. So they've got to find another meaning. That's Gnosticism as it was 2,000 years ago. Now it's the same thing. It's that they're the spiritually enlightened ones will get the more knowledge. So, you know, and, and that's what happens. There's a guy who wrote a book about replacement theology, and his name escapes me for the moment. Vaughan, somebody. Anyway... And uh, a friend of mine went to see him because he, she, he was running a, a course at a university that she was thinking of going to. And it was a theological course. But when she was given the books to read, she realized that he was replacement theology. And she went in to talk to him about his error and, <laughs> and show him that, you know, that the Bible doesn't support that. But his answer to her was not from Scripture, he didn't take a scripture argument. He said, these things are difficult for you to understand. And that's, that was the whole of his thinking. Yes, you can't understand this because you haven't studied the way I've studied. And you don't have the spiritual insight that I have. Actually, what she didn't have was the pride and arrogance that he had. So... I think that's what he's talking about. Worldly and empty chatter. It's... Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There you go. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. 
I think that's exactly. And we can get so caught up in that. And he's, he's not saying, tell them they're wrong. He's saying, avoid. Avoid that. Don't get caught up in that. Because it, it's going nowhere. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. I think definitely. I think the people he names here are certainly have been involved in that. Definitely. Yeah. Deserted pool. And he says here, it will lead to further ungodliness. So the worldly chatter itself is ungodly, but it will lead you even further into ungodliness. Um, why, why, mm. why was Satan's resurrection had already taken place? Why was Satan's resurrection false? Oh, right. Why, why is the resurrection false? Yeah, no, it's a good question, Mike, and I did say it last week. I'm just struggling now to rapidly think what I said. Already taken place. Because the resurrection they're talking about is the resurrection of believers when Christ comes to call the church. No, because remember, do you remember Thessalonians? He wrote those two letters to the Thessalonians talking about the rapture and the, and the coming of Christ. Well, Second Timothy is his last letter that he wrote. So, the, so in that time, they've been teaching, and one of the deceptions is, you missed it. Oh, you missed it. The resurrection's already taken place. The rapture's already happened. It's a bit like Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, when, what's his name? Uh, the guy who started it? John Smith. He started, um, and he said there will be 144,000 because he plucked the number out of Revelation, and 144,000 will be saved. Well, unfortunately, the Jehovah's Witnesses did a good job, and there were more than 144,000 by about 1935. And so he had to increase it. He had to increase it because he had to keep adding and changing it. So it was that idea, though, that, that you know, if, if those people have gone or have, uh, have already disappeared, then you and I are done for. And, and also, it has other ramifications, doesn't it? Because it leads to, well, the rapture was supposed to take place, then the tribulation was supposed to take place, and then that hasn't taken place, and we're 2,000 years down the line. So I'm not sure that, you know, any of it's true. Yeah. Is any of it true? So, worldly and empty chatter. And then he's going to go on and he's going to give him an instruction, but it's a kind of um, a positive instruction. What's. Um, yes, is it number five? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. What's the next instruction? Um, where are you? Where, which verse are you? Oh, where you say the Lord knows who are his. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. I, th I, th I haven't called that an instruction, although it's, it could be. But he, isn't he going to say the next instruction, I think, is now flee from youthful lusts, which is verse 22. So the other things are, this is what happens. You cleanse yourself from... Um, for, for noble purposes, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. I suppose that is an instruction, Eve. Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah. So if you call on the name of Jesus, abstain from wickedness. Pursue, um, flee from youthful lusts. What do you think he means by that? Yeah, we are. We're going to take Eve's under advisement and say that's number six. Mm. But we're not talking about it because, you know, 
I'm passing it over. So flee from youthful lusts. What does that mean? Yeah, so he's writing to Timothy. So almost certainly he's talking about sexual lust with Timothy because he's a young man and surrounded by loose women by the look of it and weak women. So I'm sure that that temptation was strong. But now how are we going to take that, we of us who are not youths anymore? How are we going to take um, Flee from Youthful Lust? Because it was written for us too. So what does that mean? There you go. You have lusts anyway. You have lusts. And the lust of the flesh and the prideful, what is it? The eyes um, and lust of, yeah, boastful pride of life. That's it. Thank you. First John. Um, those are with us for, for as long until we go to be with the Lord. So we are to flee from those lusts, flee from them. And it's not just flee from lust, it has a, a, an extension. What is it? Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, love, and peace. Pursue righteousness. How do you pursue righteousness? Because I thought we were already righteous. There you go. So, right, ask for more righteousness. But I mean, think about it. How will you pursue righteousness? Yeah. Right. So, in in practical terms, what does that mean? So you're going to flee youthful lust, flee the lust that you have, and you have them. We all have temptations. We all have human desires that we know we shouldn't be fulfilling. So he's put those two things together. Flee, flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, love and peace. So he's, they're like opposites. And he's saying, do this and do that. And yeah. the way you do that is you do this. Yes. So pursue righteousness, love and peace. And the sentence finishes with... There you go. Each other, exactly. Exactly. How do you pursue righteousness? You read the word, you do what it says. When you can't do what it says, you pray that the Lord will give you the power to do what it says. And you do that together. Together we do that. Because ah. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can imagine his quizzical look, can't you? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, it's really important, I think, that pursuing love, pursuing righteousness, love and peace is something we do. We pursue it. That means we're running after it. We're running after it because we want it. So do you want righteousness? Do you want love? Do you want peace? 
you know, and if you do, there's a laying aside and a running after that's got to go on. You've got to lay aside the human stuff that, that, yeah, and you've got to run after those things. And the best way to do it is to surround yourselves with people who want to do that too. Because it's hard to do it on your own. Yeah, yeah. So flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, love and peace. Um, what's the next one? There you go. But yeah, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. What are foolish and ignorant speculations? Yeah, yeah. What else, though? Think about it. Because there you go. Yeah, there you go. All the talk about which Mary was it that actually anointed Jesus' feet? And Mary Magdalene, do you th- I mean, who was she? And was she having an affair with one of the disciples? And, you know, and Jesus, you know, I mean, what was he like? You know, I mean, do you think this and do you think that? And all of it is just foolish speculation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Don't be sorry. It is a complete waste of time. And worse than that, it's a smokescreen to the reality of the gospel. It's just another thing that takes people away from the truth that they need saving and they need it now. Um. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I love that song. I love that song. I mean, it really stirs me when I hear it. But I want to stand up and say, this is nonsense. You know, it's nonsense. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. Refuse, foolish, and... and um, uh, ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels, and straight away the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. So, so you know now, don't you can't get involved in that speculation and, and ignorant uh, talk because it's going to make you quarrel, and when you quarrel, that means you're not behaving as the bondservant behaves. Yeah, so you just have to avoid that stuff. Refuse it, don't get involved in it. Particularly important for Timothy, who's going to be leading, leading the church in Ephesus, going around, you know, giving wisdom and teaching to other churches in Asia. Really important for him. Um, So do not quarrel. And then what does he list there? He says the Lord's bondservant should be, um, yeah, yeah. Kind, able to teach, patient went wrongs, gently correcting those in opposition. Um, okay, so how are you doing on that, Lord? <laughs> kind, gentle, <coughs> patient when you're wronged. You know, yeah. Isn't it? This is, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I know. I mean, <laughs> what does that mean? 
Where did you hear it and what does that mean? Mm. Oh, it's in Titus. It's in Titus, I think. Yes. Yeah. But this is... Yeah. I want to say, though, that um, in the context of Titus, it's um, young men, you know, uh, don't correct and be respectful to older, older men. It's in that context. It's in church harmony and things. Yeah. Um, there you go. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, be kind to all, be able to teach, be patient when wronged. They're all pretty self-explanatory. And I'm sure, like me, you read those and want to skim over them quickly because it's hard to be patient when wronged. It's really hard. When someone has misunderstood you or deliberately wronged you, that is really hard to deal with. Um, when someone says you say something that you know you didn't say, when they say you mean something you know you didn't mean, and when you know that they probably know that too, but they're deliberately doing that, it's extremely difficult to be patient. Um, but nonetheless, this, these are instructions and you've got to do it. Be gently correct those who are in opposition. Why? Who? Who was it? Yeah. Somebody said things that I said which I hadn't. Hmm. But I was then the case friend. Oh, right. 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 No. Oh, no, it's not easy at all. That's why it's here. That's why it's written down for us, because we just don't do this naturally. So... Um, yeah, so gently correct those who are in opposition. Why? Perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So he's not now talking about people who just do you wrong or people who don't get you or understand you. He's talking about people who oppose you um, in their theology, in their teaching. So he's talking specifically now about false teachers who will come in and teach wrong things. And what he's saying is, don't go around with a scattergun. You know, just gently correct. Well, I mean, that is the most difficult thing, isn't it, ever? Yeah, gently correct them because you want them to be brought to repentance. You see, most of us would say, get out of the church. We don't want you in the church teaching that heresy. But Paul's saying gently correct so that they'll come to repentance. Yeah, yeah. Right. I think, but I think the bigger thing is, maybe that's also true, but the bigger thing is Every single thing we do is supposed to have the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And if we come hard against people who, d who teach something wrong or, or oppose us, that doesn't build up the body of Christ. Actually, it demolishes it. Because I don't think Satan really cares um, whether we let the deception go on or whether we fight it tooth and nail with every inch of our life as if we want to kill the person teaching it. He, it's, it achieves the same result. The church is defamed. 
to listen. Absolutely, to listen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yes, because the whole idea is that you that they'll be granted repentance so that they can escape the snare of the enemy. So what what else do you know about what Paul would call false teaching? People who are opposing Timothy, opposing him. What is he saying about those people? Yeah, they are in the snare of the enemy. Um, does that mean they're not believers? No, they they could well be believers, but they are in the snare of Satan, held captive by him to do his will. That's an interesting statement. Mm. You And a lot of the time, I think, when we hear people speaking or preaching, uh, I have this, I used to have it a lot, I'm less less prone to it now, thankfully, but I would hear someone preaching, and even if I really liked them and, you know, thought that they were good at good preachers or whatever, they would say, I would find myself listening to what they were saying with a very critical ear, and... And, and at the end of the message, I'd almost always want to go up and say, well, I'm not quite sure that you were right there. And I have a friend who's a pastor, and I, I used to say to him sometimes, you know, I'm just not sure that you're right there. And what I realized over time was that God was showing me another angle of the same truth. So he was, he was saying something in a way that drew out some things that I hadn't even really seen in that truth. And I think that happens a lot. I think that we approach scripture and everything with our own particular mindset and God s- stretches that. I'm not saying he's doing that with your man in the collar, but it's possible. It's possible. And so I think these instructions, be kind, be able to teach, be patient when wronged, with gentleness correct, you know, they're all quite humbling, aren't they? Yeah, we have to come to that with this idea that actually I may not be right or there may be another way that I could look at this or whatever. Oh, what, that I may not be right? (laughs) Oh, right. Well, I think it's important. Yeah. Hmm? I know, <laughs> I have, but you have to hold both in tandem, you see, that's the thing. Exactly, he will, exactly. Oh, Mike, for goodness sake, yeah, yeah, he will, he will. Exactly. Yes, he does. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And he... Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, undoubtedly, Nicky Gumbel loves the Lord. And he is teaching what he believes to be correct. Yes, and one day he'll stand before the Lord, as we all will, and, and the, he'll find he was wrong on some things. And I mean, it, it will horrify him, as it will horrify me and you. And, and, but that's the reality. Um, but gently correcting those in opposition is still something we're supposed to do. Um, so all of this leads into chapter 3, and Paul will say... Uh, so he said, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers. of, And that word for men all the way through these letters is, unless it specifically says something about women, it's just uh, mankind. Mankind will be, or people. People will be like this. People will be like this. They will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, boastful, arrogant, all of those things. Now think about this because Paul's just told, be gentle, don't quarrel, be kind, gently uh, correct those in opposition, be this sort of person, don't be quarrelsome. Oh, but by the way, while you're doing that, the times are going to get darker and darker and more stressful. So how much more difficult then to be, yeah, and to be told to be this person in real times of great stress and difficulty. And so he's going to get to that end of that, that little section in verse 5 and say, the people who are like this, who are actually loving themselves more than they love God, they're choosing to love themselves more than they love God, avoid such people as these. Avoid them. So we've gone from the gently correcting those in opposition. We've moved off from the futile speculations and not arguing and not quarreling. And now he's saying this is a very specific thing. If this is the sort of people that are coming into your church, and he's talking about people who come into church because he says they hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. So he's saying avoid them. Just avoid them. Don't hang out with them. So what would be, what power are they denying? He says, holding to a form of godliness or religion, but denying its power. So what power does he mean? Yeah, you see, that's, someone said that this morning as well. And actually, I, I, it may be that too. But I think that really he's talking about self-control. He's talking about don't argue. He's talking about being gentle. He's talking about being kind. He's talking about things that only you can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the lifestyle of a godly man or woman, someone who wants to honor God. It's not natural. And so these people who are loving themselves, who are arrogant, revilers, boastful, they're denying the power of the Holy Spirit they say lives within them. Do you see what I mean? So it's not, I don't think it is the signs and the miracles. I think it's the power to be holy, which we all have. Because right in the beginning, chapter 1, what did Paul tell, uh, tell Timothy? Verse 7. I think it's verse 7. Yes. 
For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline or self-control. God has given us the ability to love and to be self-controlled. He's given us the power to do that. And if you don't live that way, you are denying the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, anybody can do some hocus-pocus and up comes a big flame or a tube of smell. Not anybody, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Magicians can do that. But not, no one can live a holy life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be holy without God. No. You just can't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. So if you are denying the power of the Holy Spirit by living a life which is, you know, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, you know, unloving, irreconcilable. If you're living like that, you're denying the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Therefore, I think as far as Paul's concerned is you may think that you're a Christian, you may even go to church every Sunday, but you are almost certainly not a believer. Now, Yes, yes, exactly. It's the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to persevere, to endure, to endure persecutions, to keep on, to keep on wanting to be holy even though everything in our humanness is screaming at us not to live holy. Don't worry about it. Just live any way you want. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Denying your own, yeah, flee youthful lusts. I mean, you know. We all of us are tempted in different ways. I mean, Paul says in Corinthians, you know, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We're, we have temptations. We all know the temptations that come to us. And we are supposed to, we are enabled to endure those temptations and not fall to sin because of the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So if you, if you are tempted to shout and scream all the time at people that you're, you say you love, well, ch- you know, that's, that can't be right. You know, so, and you have the power not to do it if you really truly have the Holy Spirit. So the fact that you are continuing to do it shows either that you don't have the Spirit or that you don't care about what you're doing. And either way, you lose. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. There is great gain. There's such, I mean, when you withstand temptation, the joy of that, when you consistently don't do something that you know, you you know, you're humanly, you want to do, but you know God doesn't want you to do, there is tremendous joy in that. And peace and power and just elation, really. 
that, that you are living the way God wants you to live. And, that, and actually, it's verification of the presence of God in you because you know you couldn't do it without him. So it's like you can't lose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and those things are not easy to do. They're hard. But because they're hard to do, you know it was God who helped you do it. And therefore, you can, you're even more elated. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you can't be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, affairs. Yeah. Yeah. It is impossible, Simon. It's impossible to be holy because only God is holy. So without His presence, you can't be holy. You can live a fairly moral, ethical life. That's possible, and there are some moral, ethical people, but that's not godliness, and that's not holiness. That's just doing what's right according to your rules. That's not necessarily what we call holiness or godliness. So, okay, so Paul said all of this, and he's saying in the middle of this, this is what you've got to avoid these people. Um, you know, and then he names these two J's, as Simon says. And, um, and then he says, you followed my teaching. So what he's done in this letter so far is to say, okay, avoid what is false and follow what is true. You know, do the things I'm telling you to do. He says, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings which happened to me at Antioch and at uh, Iconium and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You'll be persecuted. Not necessarily from outside of yourself, although that's what I think he's talking about, but there will be a certain persecution from inside where the enemy will come and he will taunt you and all sorts of things. Uh, telling you that it's not worth it and why are you doing it and you're useless for good and all of that over and over again. That's persecution. That's persecution, you know, by the enemy of your soul. And that hurts. And it's hard to get rid of. If you're persecuted physically on the outside for being a Christian, that's one thing and it's terrible. But it's also possible to be persecuted in your mind by the enemy or by the people the enemy uses to tell you you're useless, you're a failure, you're not good at this, why are you bothering to do that? All those things. Um, okay, so he's going to go on, he's going to finish this, um, this section, really, um, with some statements about Peter, he said, uh, about Timothy. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing whom you, from whom you have learned them. He's talking about his mother and his grandmother. Um, because whom there is plural, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So... um, what is Paul's remedy for all of the false teachers and all of the ungodliness and all of the everything that Timothy's going to face? What does Paul end this section with? What, what is he saying to Timothy? Stick to the word. Stick to the word. Yeah. 
you learned this from, from your mother and your grandmother. He's been traveling with Paul. He knows the scriptures. And, he, and Paul is saying to him, continue in what you know. Continue in God's word. Now, that's interesting to me because um, a lot of times over the years, people have said, if I've said, like I said this morning, if I say, okay, we're going to study Romans, there are groans because we've studied it three or four or five times before. And people have actually said to me, I, I'm not going to come to that study because I've done that before. I've done Romans, or I've done this, or I've done Hebrews, or whatever, you know. And I, I don't say it, but I want to say, what do you mean you've done Romans? How could you ever get to the bottom of Romans? You know, I mean, I, I've studied Romans, I don't know, five, six times, and, and each time it's taken 18 months to two years to study. I mean, how? I'm not even at the bottom. Now you ask me about Romans, I'll think, I'm not quite sure what that means, actually, you know. So it's impossible to get to the bottom of it. Why? Why is it impossible to get to the bottom of it? Yes. Exactly. Why is that, though, John? I mean, it's a living word. It's a living word. That means it's alive. That means it will create things as it's spoken. Because God's word creates it brings light where there's darkness. It creates life. It, and it continually does that. What's another reason? It's a living word. Why is it a living word? Because Jesus is the word. And he's alive forevermore. So he is the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God, John says. He is the word of God. And he's alive. And this, this book is alive. So why is Timothy to continue in it? Because God will speak life to him through it. He will speak life to him. If the Bible speaks life to people or if it's a living word, what will, the Bible, what will reading the Bible bring about? Salvation. Salvation. First and foremost, it will bring you to salvation. That's what the Bible says about itself, that you will be brought to salvation. The scripture leads you to salvation. But what sort of salvation? Because you're not saved by believing the Bible. You can read the Bible and know it's true and everything else. That doesn't save you. What does the Bible lead you to then? It leads you to trust the Christ who's revealed in the Bible. So salvation is in Christ alone, not in the scriptures. It's in the Christ alone. But the Bible leads you to Christ and then tells you how to be saved. And then after you're saved, what happens? What does the Bible do? Because it's a living word. Yeah? It's transformation. How does it do that? Yeah, because it renews our mind. So we're renewed in our minds and transformed by the Holy Spirit as he takes the scriptures and makes them real and alive in our lives. So we, feed, we come to salvation through the word. We feed on salvation. We, f we get the, everything out of our salvation through the word, obviously by the Holy Spirit. There's no separation between the spirit and the word. They're the same. You know, there's so much division in the church about, well, we've got the spirit and you've got the word. And it's like, what is that? That's nonsense. It's just nonsense. It's futile speculation and ignorant, you know, it's all of that. The, the, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. Jesus, the Son of God, is 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Father is the Father of truth. It's all about truth. And the Word is truth. So there's no separation. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, he is the God of truth. John 14, 6, Jesus is the, the truth. And the Spirit is truth, 1 John 5, verse 6. These are important because these are things people will say. It's Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is the God of truth. 32, verse 4. Jesus said, we've got it on the wall, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Um, okay, so how did the Spirit, or he put, because Paul will say, all Scripture is inspired by God. So how did God inspire the Scriptures? Yeah, what did he do? Yeah. Right, spoke to and through the people that he, he, that he were going to write it down. So did he just walk up to Moses and say, right, I want you to write this? It's so in, don't you think it's interesting? I think it's really interesting. I mean, did he just take a random person, okay, and I'm, you're going to write this, I'm going to breathe my word into you, which of course he could have done. No. What does he do with Moses? in order to get him to the place where he is able to write the first five books of the scripture, he, he has him born at a particular time, in a particular place. And then he has a particular pharaoh say, we're going to kill all those babies under two. And then he has the mother put him in a basket. And then he has the sister see the, um, the pharaoh's daughter. And then he has him brought up in the palace. And then he has him go out and see, he, you know, this, and kill an Egyptian. And then he has him have to run to Midian and spend 40 years in the desert. And all of that, all of that is preparation for the man who will actually receive the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and write it down. So what's God in charge of? He's in charge of everything. He, he's prepared the place, the time, the person. And then he said, this is, you're going to write down through this. I don't think he said, write this down. But you know what I mean. That Then he inspires. How did he inspire the, the Psalms? He put people in situations. He prepared them for the psalm that they would be writing. So the psalm is perfect for the person who writes it and perfect for you and I who read it 3,000, 4,000 years later. I mean, it's amazing how God put this together. It's incredible. So then ask yourself, why have we got 66 books? Why not 67? Or 65, why not? That's what God wants. And because he prepared every word in every book. And why haven't we got other books in there? Because why haven't we got the Gospel of Thomas and, and all the other sundry things? Why haven't we got those in? Yeah, or the Apocrypha. Why haven't we got that in there? No, not what you believe, because what you believe is great, Anne, but it doesn't save me or help me. So not what you believe. What is the actual truth if God is real, if he is who he says he is, then he has put together the number of books he wants in this word. And it's impossible, inconceivable, that there's a book somewhere that someone might find that should be in there. Yeah. Yeah. My 
response would be, just as the God prepared the people to write the books, he prepared the people to put it together. And he prepared the whole, the way it was translated. And he prepared the, what's his name? You know, the one who wrote it all down in English. What's his name? Tyndale. He prepared Tyndale. He, he, everything was prepared to enable this word to hang together as it is. And he even prepared my Bible, which is beautiful, and you're jealous of it. So everything, I'm only joking, sorry, yeah, I couldn't resist. Everything about the Bible, God has ordained. And, and, and the thing is, the Apocrypha, when did that come into the Bible? Yeah, I mean, much later than these. Yes, much later, because it was a, a thing of the church. Now, I'm not saying some of it isn't good or even true. Hmm? Yeah, and, and it may be well, it might be well, it, it, very informative, but it's not scripture. It's not scripture. So, so okay, so the scriptures are true, they're dependable, we believe that God put them together. And then he makes a great verse, verse 16, he says, the scripture is profitable for teaching, uh, doctrine, that word means doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, what is it? Um, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, now, I've read this somewhere else, so I can't claim this for me. I'd love to, but I can't. So what are they profitable for? What's the scripture profitable for? So we said teaching or doctrine. What does teaching or doctrine tell you? Very simply. Doctrine tells you what is right. What's reproof? What does reproof do? Tells you what's wrong, what's not right. Tells you what's not right. What's correction? How to get right. So, doctrine, what's right. Reproof, what's wrong. Correction, how to get right. And instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. <laughs> Don't you love it? I mean, this is okay. This is God, right? Writing to you and I today. It's, it's, it, we're here and he knows we're going to read this and he knows what we need to know is what's right, what's not right, you know, how to get right and how to stay right. That's what you need, isn't it? Is there anything else that you need? No. Read the Bible. That's what he's saying. The Bible is good for that. Yeah, exactly, 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 yeah, exactly, and I don't understand it, exactly, and, and James writes that, doesn't he, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives wisdom without partiality, but you see, the thing is, this is a simple answer, what's the Bible, oh, it's, you know, what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. What does the Bible tell you? Who God is and who I am and how we live together. Those are simple answers and they're not good enough for people who are prideful about their intellect. They're not good enough for people who want a reasoned philosophical argument about why these books are there. So it, I'm not saying it's not important to be able to reason it. It is important. It's important to study the scripture and you could go for your a million lifetimes and not get to the bottom of it because it's alive 
and you're changed by reading it. And because you're changed, you need another lot of living words. So you need another lot of examples. Um, but that's what God says it is. And what does it actually end up doing? So that the person of God may be equipped and adequate for every good work. So what can you expect if you study the scriptures, if you do all of these things, if you determine to do whatever you can to be diligent, to present yourself approved to God, to, to surround yourself with people of like mind who want to love God and who want to go on with the Lord. What can you expect from God? Favor, yeah. Blessing, yeah. What does he say here? He will equip you for every good work. You will be adequate, which also means equipped. So it's like a double equipping. You will be equipped for every good work. Okay, what do you think the good work is? It also complete. okay. Yeah, so that must be uh, adequate is equipped and equipped is complete. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. So you'll be complete. Okay, so what is it you think that God might ask you to do that you're not going to be able to do if you do these things? Nothing, nothing. That's the answer, nothing. There is nothing that if God calls you to do it, you will be inadequate for or ill-equipped for if you do what he is saying to do. All scripture is God-breathed. Study the word, follow Paul, avoid what is false, follow what is true, do it together. I mean, you know, it's like basics, isn't it? Study the word, pray, fellowship, you're okay. That's what he's telling him. And the thing is, the times are going to get worse. They're going to get darker. And we're going to have to be more, more able to do these things. Because, you know, I'm thinking a lot these days about reaching young people and, you know, just, and, and as I get older, I think, well, Lord, how can I reach young people? You know, I mean, you know, who's going to listen to me and blah, 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 blah. But the reality is this word will give me passion, has given me passion. And, and he, because God creates in me what he wants to use in me. And so I believe that. I believe it. I know that young people need truth. They need truth. And they need truth from people who believe truth. That's the thing. If you're real and passionate and de determined to be radically passionate for God, then you will reach old and young. It doesn't matter who they are, where they come from, because people recognize that. Exactly. Yeah, probably not good for us, yeah. Well, that's why you're here, Carol, <laughs> to remind Eve and to remind me. I'm only kidding. But seriously, passion, that's what we need. If you don't have passion, then everything becomes rote. You just start speaking about it as if it's like everyday stuff. This is not everyday stuff. This is so different to anything that is human. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I think, yeah, I think it's just, I'm passionate for truth to be told. Hey? <laughs> what? You see, 
Oh, well, I, don't, I say that and then God brings me to tears every other minute. So it's like a pride thing, isn't it? Oh, I don't cry. I'm so strong. No. Yeah, no, I do cry. I might have I don't cry, but it was a lie. I do. I cry a lot. Um, okay, so we're going to be passionate and we're going to do these things and we're going to make sure that we uh, stir up Paul says, that's where I'm going to, with the passion. God, um, Paul said in chapter 1, stir up the gift of God that is in you. Stir it up. Feed the fire. That's what we have to do. Feed the fire. And you feed the fire by praying together, by reading the scriptures, by fellowshipping together, by determining to do what God is calling us to do. Yeah, that's it. Plan into flames, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Mm. You don't start a fire though from fanning. No, you rate, you know, you yeah. It has to be a spark there, because you can't just wave a fan and then fire comes. So. <laughs> Well, you didn't want to wrangle about words. So anyway, Father, we thank you for this word, this amazing word. I, I just thank you for, for the whole thing, Lord. For the, I thank you even that I don't understand all of it because it just forces me to go on with you and to keep on and keep asking you and to realize that my pea brain is never going to be able to understand it all, but that you are a magnificent, immense God and you will teach me the things that I need to live the life that you want me to live. And that's enough for me, Lord. It's enough for me. And so I praise you, Lord. We all praise you. We want to say that we love you in and we want to serve you, Lord. So I, I pray for that, that we would be shown the way to serve you and to love you better. And that you wouldn't leave us where we are, but that you would march us on with you, Lord God. That we would be hungry for more of you. And I, I thank you, Lord, because you will answer that prayer. For those of us who have actually prayed it from the heart, you will answer it. And again, I praise you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.